Welcome to TGE the podcast. It is episode 58. It's a special one. It's a big one. Big movie. Apocalypse Now. Oh. It's a classic. I don't know if we're going to give it justice. We're going to give it a shot. I watched the movie yesterday. I even watched the documentary. So I have all this information and I should probably not share all that stuff. It should just be about the scene. But uh, that's what we do on this podcast. With me is Tyler. Tyler, how are you? Good, Sven. Doing good. We want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank everyone for subscribing to the podcast. You can ask Siri to subscribe to it for you. We also appreciate everyone who sends in questions that we can answer on the podcast or post comments or thoughts for us on the YouTube channel. It's all great, and we appreciate it. And you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you listen to podcasts. That's right. Which I hear Spotify is on Tesla now. So Sven... Sorry. <laughs> ooh. So speaking of shameless plugs... I'm just kidding. So speaking of YouTube stuff, you have a new video coming out that you previewed for my class a few weeks ago when you came and visited, and it was really interesting because it's all about the algorithm on YouTube, right? That's right. Taking everything I've learned in the past two years and I'm putting it into that video and I've been working on this video for, I think I presented this before in your class, like last semester. So that's how long it's been that I've been working on that video. Uh, yeah, you've been teasing me with it for like four months. You've been working at different cuts and stuff like that and YouTube keeps changing, but I think you feel like you're finally on top of it and now's the time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's now it's the time and there's actually something that just recently changed in the algorithm that completely helped me on the latest video that is currently on the channel, which is the one about the Netflix show Sextuplets. And within within a few hours, I was able to really optimize the thumbnail and video title and get the data back that I know I'm on the right track to be able to just speed roll the traffic. And it is the best performing video of the year. Not just because it's got a great thumbnail, but it's a good video. Awesome. Yeah, I remember But you got some issues with it. Yeah. You got to optimize the... Uh, you, it's not enough to do a good video. You also then have to figure out a way how to make it interesting, like for people to click on, for people to know what it's about and not be disappointed when they click on it. And so there are these three aspects you really got to get right, which is the thumbnail and then the enticing video um, uh, title, the video title, and then obviously you have to back it up with good content. And The, the the first two, which is the thumbnail and the video title, are so tricky to get right. You kind of need to make a change and then you had to wait for uh, a day or two to figure out if it actually had a positive effect. And now that can be done basically almost real time. So, yeah, I think it's time to do a video about that and let people know. Very cool. Apocalypse Now, the inspiration came from a patron. His name is Lee and he sent me a message and says... I saw Apocalypse Now for the first time the other day. It's edited great. Love the opening sequence with the dissolves. Never did I think that simple dissolves can convey so many emotions and give you backstory in a matter of minutes. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Yes, Apocalypse Now is a milestone film, and you just inspired me to do a podcast episode in the coming weeks. And that's been three weeks, and now we're doing it. So... 
somebody suggested it and we're doing it. That's the kind of stuff we do. Very cool. And I was a little apprehensive to rush into it too quickly. We sometimes will do that and it's a lot of fun. And there's some films that call that just have so much surrounding them that they call for a little bit more processing before we dive into it, which was more the case, you know, I think on your end for this one, Sven, but I think that's that's something that happens a lot is we're not going to have all the information on the behind the scenes of every single movie ever made, but we are going to look at scenes and give our reactions to what is being presented and what the effect of the final choices is. Now, there may be something behind the scenes that we'll speculate about, this, that, and the other things we've encountered and how we may have gotten to this place, but a lot of the fun of the show is us figuring this stuff out, maybe suggesting how something or other might have happened, or we just merely comment on something having a certain feel. And then if we get feedback, someone has an insight onto why that might be that or something else, you notice it's always great. So that's kind of how the show works. So collaborate with us, participate, send us your thoughts and comments on stuff, things you might know, and it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I got to say, that's, that's my favorite part of doing this podcast and keep doing it, is that it makes me rewatch movies that I haven't seen in a long time, or it makes me watch movies that I know I should have seen and never got around to doing it, or movies that I've never heard of, but that are obvious classics, and do that too. So it really enriches me personally, and I hope it's also for the listeners, to really go out there and seek out movies and not watch just Big Brother and Survivor and whatever else is out there, The Mask, uh, The Mask Singer, I guess. Um Okay. To um, to um, yeah, make that time to watch those movies and remind ourselves what's working. I mean, I haven't seen Apocalypse Now probably in ten years, and so it was mm-hmm. almost like watching it for the first time again, and it was great. Yeah, rewatching just the scene was really mind blowing and eye opening because uh, I mean I've learned a lot. I almost feel like my entire everything I've learned about filmmaking has happened since I saw that movie. So it's kind of interesting to understand more of the stuff that's going into it, more of the instruments and techniques. That's so true. Now. Yeah. It's like now when you rewatch it and you've actually worked in the industry for a while, it does give you like a whole different take on a lot of things. Cool. Yeah. So what scene is this, Sven? Well, at first I suggested the uh, the obvious one and you were like, well, everybody did that. Um, so then we went to the... I think it's called the mass- the boat massacre scene, which I completely mm-hmm. forgot about, just erased right. out of my memory because it's not one of those three big ones. And mm-hmm. it's such an interesting scene because it is, you kind of, the, the whole movie is kind of a road movie in a way. And so you have these episodes happening along the way as you're going up the river. And mm-hmm. this is one of those. And you would think, the, the whole movie would work without it, but it adds so much by just raising the stakes and the insanity, and it's it's just fits in with the overall promise of the film that I think it's great, great example of these these little scenes, these moments that happen that really build and add to the bigger picture. Yeah, and I think that that idea of the road of that structurally being pulled together at the end of the scene is really cool too, and we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Should we set up the movie? And where are we in the journey at this point? So Willard has been charged with going and finding Colonel Kurtz, and he's going down the river, and then yeah, well, I I would say we're like maybe halfway to that infamous bridge that they have to get to, and then cross into Cambodia, and mm-hmm. they've just. Um, had an episode, and I think it's kind of important for this scene, where they stopped at a riverbank, and one of the soldiers 
um, his name is Chef, he wanted to get some mangoes. So he sort of jumped off the boat and Willard followed him and they had this incident with a tiger. And he basically, they right. basically ran back to the boat and, and that guy is now completely off the wagon and he's like, I'm never leaving this boat again. Whenever I leave this boat, just bad stuff happens. And this is a good, mm-hmm. good to know when we get into this scene to, know, to understand why he's so on the edge. And also, where does this fall in relationship to the infamous Valkyrie scene that we were, that you wanted to do? Um, after? Yeah, this is way after. So the okay. Valkyrie scene so he's, right. is, is, fairly early in the movie it's like beginning of the second act where they basically start their journey on this river and they have to take over this this delta um to get their boat landed there and start going and so yeah it's been a while cool yeah just in terms of his journey that was that's good to know so he's been corrupted quite a bit from where he started yeah should we quickly set up the movie Apocalypse Now is a 1979 American epic war film about the Vietnam War, directed, produced, and co-written by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brandy, Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest, Albert Hall, Sam Bottoms, Bottoms, Lawrence Fishburne, and Dennis Hopper. Harrison Ford also makes an appearance in a very small role, and I, I totally forgot about that. The screenplay co-written by Coppola and John Milius, and narration written mm-hmm. by Michael Hare. It's loosely based on the 1899 novella Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. The setting was changed from late 19th century Congo to the Vietnam War, 1969-1970. The film follows a river journey from South Vietnam into Cambodia, uh, Cambodia, undertaken by Captain Benjamin Willard, a character based on Conrad Marlowe, played by Martin Sheen, and he's on a secret mission to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, which is Brando, a renegade army special forces officer accused of murder and who's presumed insane. In the insanity, I think, is the overall theme of this whole movie. Everybody is insane at, at sort hmm. of at different shades of insanity. The film was honored with the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival when it premiered unfinished before it was finally released in August 1979 by United Artists. The film performed well at the box office, grossing 78 million domestically and going on to gross over 150 million worldwide. Initial reviews were mixed. While Vittorio Storaro's cinematography was wildly acclaimed, several critics found Coppola's handling of the story's major themes to be anticlimactic and intellectually disappointing. Apocalypse Now is today to be considered to be one of the greatest films ever made. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards at the 52nd Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor for Duval. And edited, of course, by... Four people, including Walter Murch, Richard Mark, Lisa Fruchman, and Gerald D. Greenberg. Yes, with uh, Richie Marks being the supervising editor. And the interesting thing about that is Walter Murch, obviously the legendary, infamous film editor... This is where he kind of, one of the films where he transitioned from doing sound and stuff like on The Godfather more into picture editing on Apocalypse Now and I think was more instrumental later in the process on this film because it just took so, 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 so long to edit and there's so much interesting stuff surrounding that that's really interesting to look into but this is when he really kind of like became an editor and also more importantly it was the first among many things of Apocalypse Now was the one of the first movies if not the first movie to have five channels of audio available mm. in the finished product so they were able to do a much richer soundscape that played of course with 70 millimeter and stuff like that that had a room for that additional audio and they had to really figure out a lot of things to make that 
work, which is interesting to talk about. Yeah, and Walter Murch won an Oscar for sound, and he got nominated with all the other editors for editing. And then Murch carried on to, of course, do the reduxes and the later versions of the re-releases of Apocalypse yeah. Now. He was instrumental in those. As far as I can tell, he actually cut this particular scene. He says that he was cutting basically from the opening all the way up to this boat massacre, and then another editor did the rest. He didn't do the initial cut on the Valkyrie scene. Um, that was also done by somebody else. All right. What are we doing, Sven? What we usually do, and we will do it again, is we look at a specific scene, and we want to just look at the details and ask some questions. We often get these questions not right, but it's important to pay attention. It's it's sort of when we watch movies, it works or it doesn't, and we don't quite know why. But as editors, we want to know what, why certain things are working that we can sort of make it our second nature, our professional instincts. So in this particular scene, I think we'll do that as well. We'll have a link available in the podcast description of a clip that's on YouTube. Unfortunately, the clip that I found, somehow the aspect ratio is off, so everything is a little squished. Mm -hmm. But um, it's still, I think, an important scene to pick. I'm glad we're actually doing this scene. And then we'll go back and cool. analyze it. All right. We're starting off on a shot that's... That's kind of a medium two shot of the boat chief, and then Willard is sort of standing behind him in the. Okay, so here we go. In three, two, one, click. What's up, chief? A junk boat, Hang Captain. On. We're going to take a routine check. Well, let's we have a white shot trekking behind the boat, and they're approaching this Vietnamese fishing boat. We'll go take a look. Chief, my mission's got priority here. Hell, you wouldn't even be in this part of the river if it wasn't for me. Until we reach your destination, Captain, you just on for the ride. Stand by, man. Back to the white shot tracking. They're approaching the boat. Let's bring it over. And they're just sort of docking right next to it. They're throwing ropes over, and they're going to inspect the boat. So they feel instinctively that there's nothing to suspect at all or inspect. Yeah, well, that's what Will have things. Okay, so then there's this soldier we talked about, Chef. He's looking at the paperwork. Then we got Clean on the um, big gun. Another soldier. Willard's totally disinterested. And it's interesting to pay attention to how few shots of Willard there are in this. Yeah, which maybe there might be a reason for that. We'll get to that. Um, okay, so we're investigating. Baskets, ducks, bananas. Medium shots of the various soldiers. This is like Larry's, Larry Fishburne. He's like playing with a gun. Get on that boat! There's nothing on it, man! Get on it! All right! So now he has to leave the boat, and that's the thing he swore he wasn't going to do. Chef is going through all the different like baskets and barrels. And at this point, I'm like, okay, he's probably going to find somebody hiding right now. Hmm. He pushes away uh, one of the women. What's in the boxes? Look in the tin can. That rusty can. Throws a sack of rice. And then he opens up a thing, and something happens. The woman rushes him, and they start shooting. 
Kuro is on the ground. He's got his gun that he pulls out, but he's not involved. Another soldier called Lance, and he, he forgot to uh, load his rifle, so he sort of gets late to the party, but he shoots them up as well. Let's kill all the assholes! Total brain lock here. Lots of medium shots. Clean. I'm good. Uh, Willard comes out of hiding. You okay, so they basically now shut up all these fishermen for no reason. You all right? And women. Yeah. Run him for! <laughs> and he pulls out a little puppy. Did you soldiers fight over the puppy? You want that? Chef, she's moving behind you. She's alive. Check her out. Chef! Okay, we're in a semi-wide here. He's looking over. We don't see the woman. She's out of the shot. He's like bending over her, trying to figure out what's. Now we pan down and. Fishburn is coming. They want to carry her off the boat. I want to take her to get medical care because she's still alive. Yeah. Bring her on board. We're taking her to an Arvin. Look at what are you talking about? We're taking her to some friendlies, Captain. She's wounded. She's not dead. The book says, Captain. Medium shot of Willard as he shoots the woman. And on a medium shot off shaft. Fuck you. Like breaking down. I told you not to stop. Now mm -hmm. let's go. Lots of medium shots of the various soldiers in sort of their state of mind. Shock. The other guy's like curled up with the puppy. And then we end on Willard. It's like sitting down. The fade. He goes, he looks down and then he looks into the camera. We almost miss it here because we're fade to black, which I don't think is part of the movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, and it's what you're saying about the medium shots thing. That's so interesting because they're even almost a little wider than that and how just this entire scene with everything that happens is covered with that and how infrequently we go to Willard, Martin Sheen's character, to see... As you typically would, you'd want to be tracking, oh, what's going on with the protagonist? There's almost this aggressive choice is made in this that we're not tracking him emotionally at all. And then he does the thing he does at the end in the, in the wider shots, and it's almost more unsettling because we're not really connected with him at all anymore. And then he goes and sits down, and that's kind of when we get that, that reconnection. And then structurally, of course, like you said, there's like this, this huge total standalone scene that's very much a commentary on stuff going on in Vietnam, but also just this terrifying traumatic awful scene that's its own thing just living in its own world showing us what's going on in his journey and then boom just by him shooting her it escalates the intensity of the scene but also just hooks us back into the story of we're tracking him and his descent and that's ultimately what this whole crazy thing happens uh what the ultimately what this whole crazy thing is a setting up and about which is is really cool how it can stand on its own and then just become a big chunk in the continuing story yeah. I mean, if this scene would have gone 
um, any other way that is possible, it probably wouldn't have made it into the movie because it's basically an episode. But I think I think why it works so well with the characters is so it starts off with they're basically um, have brain lock, right? It's it's almost in a way like somebody makes a, the wrong move and then. S- somebody starts shooting and everybody starts shooting at that point because they're like, oh, fuck, something just happened. They don't even know what happened. Um, but they feel right. this danger and they're just shooting up the whole place. It's And it, at that point, it's just f- fight or flight instinct. There's no control. There's nobody making any rational decisions at that point. And I think that's what that, that scene is showing. It's the insanity of war in a way. But I think the irony is that then towards the end, the only person that wasn't involved in the whole thing is Willard. He was like, he didn't want to do this stop and he doesn't get involved when they do the search. And then when they start shooting, he hides. And then at the end, he's he's the one, the only person that actually technically did a murder because he... He did, he wasn't reacting in an emergency, trying to survive. He made that choice to kill that woman so that his mission can continue, and his mission mm-hmm. is to to go up the river and find that insane colonel that, that has gone rogue and kill him. And this act that he's doing is just equally insane. So it this small scene has a premise that fits overall with with the movie, right? It's much more intentional, and I don't know if I would say so much he's hiding as he, he's just having like a natural reaction to gunfire. Yeah. Well, but he's not. But, he, yeah, that's he's a, not rushing to get in there. Like this one soldier who wasn't ready at the ready, he's like he's now rushing to to load up his machine rifle, and then he gets in there too. But Willard also doesn't really have a view of what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's just a weird. It just seems like a natural reaction to sudden gunshots going off. It's what you do. Yeah. But of course, he's not involved. Yeah, and you were saying, okay, we see f- um, relatively little of Willard in this entire scene, and it, there could be two reasons. I think the one reason that is story, right? He's not part of it. He makes clear he doesn't support this. This is not his mission. Um, it's 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 wasting time. Um, and then he sort of steps aside. But I think the other reason right. could potentially be that uh, they shot parts of this when Martin Sheen was in in the hospital, <laughs> and they they had to cheat that it. Could, and that could be true, but also just you know a close up of the shots we do have of him, it'd be very easy to just cut to him. And I just think it's a more generic choice to kind of everything that happens, like we're going to his reaction, like we would in in so many other movies I can think yeah. of. You know, like just him processing this. So to kind of just remove him from it completely one adds to the kind of like the naturalistic feel of it which i'll talk about in a second but also adds to the surprise of when he's back in it you know because we're not seeing how he's processing this we don't know what he's thinking and the only reason he really comes back into it is when he hears we're gonna stop and it's like yeah boom and just shoots her it's like holy it's just it just seems like a more effective choice to really rack us back into it than tracking everything traditionally through the protagonist which would usually happen. Agreed. If you go to 109 and just freeze there it's this high angle wide shot where you see pretty much everybody you see obviously the chief and then you see the three soldiers and you see the Vietnamese fishermen and women and then way in the background you just see a head across (laughs) which is Willard or a stand in for Willard. Right. And it <laughs> totally visually signifies 
how little involved he is at this point, how this is not his deal. Right. And he's taking his shoes off and stuff through the whole thing. Like he's going to go for a swim or something, yeah. which I kind of, you're expecting him to do one thing and then, which kind of sets up how completely sideways this goes very well. Yeah. And then if you, if and you then, compare the two shots, 121, which is in the foreground, we have the chief. And then in the background, we have a 14 year old Lawrence Fishburne and we have the chef. And just look at the lighting and the, the composition. This is like during the day. But then if you cut to mm. 124, um, granted, we're now shooting against the sun. The sun is reflected in the river. Um, and this mm. is a shot of Marley, um, Martin Sheen in the background. And you see Lance in the foreground, another soldier. It does look like mm. this could be a completely different day or just different time of day. Yes, and I think there's something... I think that my times are a little bit different for some reason, but yes, it does seem like it was shot in different seasons, different time of year even. Yeah. Which is very cool because we often talk about a big thing for you, especially is how creative restriction can push you to, to you know, a greater achievement often and to embrace that. There's so much of that through this entire movie. Yeah. And we could be wrong. One thing oh, I, I thought, could be wrong. But it's, it totally, story-wise, it makes complete sense to take him out of the scene for... Uh, big chunks of the scene. Yeah, and sometimes you have to make that choice, and sometimes you wouldn't have. You would have just more traditionally done it like Back to the Future or something like that, where we're seeing Marty's eyes the entire yeah, time. Yeah. But that said, you know, one thing I think is really cool looking at this too is just how how really there they are, you know, and the way it's covered and everything. When you're shooting, when we know how difficult it is to shoot on water. I can only imagine what a nightmare this would be to do. Yep. So just having those wide shots, like these boats have to align. I mean, how many takes are you going to get where stuff is matchable and usable, where the boats aren't just like spinning out? And <laughs> they're gonna, I mean, there's just it's so hard to make water stuff work, and so much happens in this. And you can tell they're just on the boats with cameras. Yeah. It just lends itself to a really cool, naturalistic feel, even though it's totally epic in the scope of it and aspect ratio and everything like yeah. that. It just adds more reality, even though it's such a visually beautiful film, which is amazing because there's just such like a loose, there's so little control over like really what's going to specifically happen in the frame. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's really they're keeping it super simple. Like there's no real, very stylistic camera work in this. It's all basically just covering mm -hmm. this over and over again to just get the scene. Lots of medium shots. There's no, no extreme close-ups anywhere. Yeah. Um, not at all. I think the only and really like stylistic shot is the one at the end when we end on Willard and he's it's complete he's like center frame looking down and then looking I I want to say he's looking into the camera which happens apparently quite a lot in this film that he like stares mm -hmm. through us and it doesn't even feel weird he's not breaking the fourth wall right it just we're so with him in his head that it works yeah something Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi implemented a lot in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And the other thing about the wide shots, there's just, I've never seen a scene more with opportunity for an extreme close-up of like every single character processing what just happened, getting to see how they feel about it. You could totally do it and get away with yeah. it. But for some reason, not doing that, maybe because they couldn't, who knows why, but by not doing it, it makes that ending have such more of an effect because it's like as an audience you're thinking, you're realizing you're not really connected with these people anymore at all. He's turned so much, we're not even getting 
into like the deep emotion of being able to see what he's processing and what he's thinking. It's just like, boom, this thing happens. He's going to go sit down and now you're kind of seeing the sun go down behind him. And it's like, okay, now we're not in with this guy anymore. He's kind of become his own thing, which I think is just in the shot size, shot sizes chosen, whether planned, whether out of necessity, whether done as a choice in the editing, it really adds this really extra effect to it. Not unlike the shining. Yep. The one thing that I also would like to emphasize is the dynamic range in the scene, how it like starts off slow and brooding, and then it gets obviously mm. frantic and quick cutting, and then it slows down again, and it's like this deadly silence almost, like this just, what have we just done? Um, and it, it again mm-hmm. slows down in the editing as well. Yeah, and so much of it ends up being on them, which during the actual shooting, which again could be creative restriction in terms of like how many squibs and stuff you could do. I'm sure the way that maybe it was filmed or shot for the effect of them getting shot, they only had so much they could replay. So, but so holding on them allows you to have them shoot longer, but it also has a specific dramatic effect being on the guys shooting way more than any other action scene you would naturally be cutting to seeing. I don't know, like the bag of rice that he grabbed exploding or something like that. All this stuff, instead of doing that, we're just cutting back and forth between them, not making the obvious move. And it, and it again, kind of adds this like haunting, weird effect to the audience where it's like, oh, shit, this is what we're looking at, is the people doing it, not the effect. Oh, my. Yep. It's beautiful. Shocking. Cool, yeah, and it goes against the grain. Yeah, I think the moral of it is just a scene that really goes, it, a scene that works perfectly, but it also goes against the grain of a lot of normal instincts one would have in cutting picture together, and it has a really lasting effect because of it. Yep. For sure. Um, yeah, so that's basically it. I want to point out that Walter Merch is coming to L.A. Uh, next month, Woo. third week of October. Um, it's what day? It's not quite official yet, so I'll hold off on the days. But supposedly, <laughs> third week of October, he'll be presenting the current project he's working on, which is a documentary, and show some scenes. And if you're in LA, this is an opportunity just to meet a a legendary editor and see him talk in person about what he's currently up to. Very cool, and all that matters to me is what day of the week, but you may see us there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll, once it's out, once the announcement is out, I'll we'll plug it again on the podcast. Awesome, and then we're going to interview him. Oh, hopefully, that'd be cool. <laughs> I, I mean, for the, for the Netflix video, I got to interview Lawrence Jordan, ACE, and he worked mm-hmm. with Richard Marks quite a bit. I think he might even be related to him. And so it was really cool to to hear him talk about how Richard Marx works, and that's really awesome. cool. You have to share that with us on the next episode. And if you have a scene you'd like us to look at, it seems like next week we're going to do Hail Caesar because that came up anecdotally doing three billboards last week. But we're going to look at Hail Caesar, and we we love taking suggestions, doing scenes you point us to. A lot of the most exciting things that have happened on the show have been because of that. So do indeed post some thoughts, post some suggestions, and tell your friends about the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, if you have, thank you very much. We very much appreciate it. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere else. As always, thank you to Curta for the music. And as Fen has always said and always will, happy editing. Put your head between the speakers